have you ever watched the movie Home Alone? <laughs> yeah, so uh, the movie Home Alone uh, features uh, Macaulay Culkin, and he is uh, stranded. His parents get so busy planning for their vacation that they actually forget their kid. You know, so some of you hear that, and you're like, how could somebody forget your kid? And others of you are like, I say that, and you're like, oh, man, I remember a time. And you, like, have these, like, memories washing over you right now. So... But they, they get so busy that, um, that they pack their luggage, they have all these deadlines, all these expectations, all these things that they have to do, that they totally forget Kevin. You know, Kevin is just kind of sitting at home, sleeping in his bed, you know, and wakes up and his parents aren't there. And it's only when they slow down, right, that, that she begins to notice, hold on now, <laughs> something's missing here. And then they realize that someone is missing, actually, someone really important is missing, and they only noticed when they slowed down, right? When all the, the hustle and the bustle and all the expectations started to kind of calm down, they noticed. And as I prepared for the message this week, this story came up because I feel like I can really relate with them. Is that um, often in life, I see in my, my own life as well as in those around me, is that we get so busy. We get so hurried with the expectations, with the deadlines, with the things to do, with the people to please, with all these things that we forget someone, someone really important someone vital. We forget God. More importantly, we forget God, the Holy Spirit, is that we go along and we focus on our hobbies or our work or our family or our entertainment, and we we go into all of these things, and we forget to even ask God to come with us. And it's only when we get still, it's only when we get silent that we feel there's something wrong. We feel there's a distance. We feel that there's a gap. We feel like the God that we're supposed to know so intimately is actually very far from us. And it's because we have not invited him to come. It's because we have forgotten him. It's uh, Francis Chan actually wrote a book about the Holy Spirit and he called it the forgotten God. Because so often we have a tendency to forget the Holy Spirit and to ignore and neglect his role in our lives. And so what we're going to talk about today is that the title of the message is Life in the Spirit. Is We're going to talk about our life in the Holy Spirit. And so if you would um, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, um, verse 1. And as you're turning there, um, pray for me and I'll, and I'll pray for you. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to gather together. Thank you for your word that you have proclaimed. Help us to listen in these moments. We pray that your Holy Spirit would invade our lives. We ask for forgiveness for the times that we have neglected him. And when we have gone about and been busy and all of the things that we think are so important. Help us now in these moments to hear. I ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word, that he would make it understandable, and that you would apply these things to our heart and to our life. And it's in your name that we pray all these things, King Jesus. Amen. Paul says in, starting in verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, 
but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Chapter 8 of Romans is all about life in the Spirit. It's all about understanding who the Holy Spirit is and what it means to be in relationship with him, to be in this dance as he leads and as we follow. And so this passage that we have, if there's a big idea, right, if there's one thing that I want you to grab a hold of, that I want you to chew on, that I want you to soak in, stick in your mind and meditate on this week, it's that Christians fight, Christians fight and kill sin through living according to the Spirit, right? How is it that Christians kill sin? We kill sin. Sin is killed in the lives of Christians by living according to the Spirit, by living according to the Spirit. So if you're new here and perhaps you're not a Christian, one, I want to welcome you. I want to thank you that you're here. And I hope that you find that this is a safe place for you to ask questions, for you to seek understanding, and for you to experience God, to know that you're loved, to know that you're welcome, to know that that God loves you and that he has brought you here to hear this. And that as we journey today, that you'll learn about what Christianity is, about what it's about, and about how the Holy Spirit leads and operates. And so hopefully some things will be clarified that you might see and ultimately will lead you to believe. Um, There are two points. So two points that we are going to spend most of our time talking about today. Um, The first one is that the Holy Spirit brings freedom, right? So how is it that we fight sin? The Holy Spirit brings freedom in order that we might fight sin. The second one is that the Holy Spirit imparts life. So Holy Spirit brings freedom and the Holy Spirit imparts life. So first, the Holy Spirit brings freedom. Verse 1 starts out in this and it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I can't tell you, this is probably the grace assurance and grounds for Christian security that there, there could possibly be. Now, we need to understand this verse in context of the whole, right? Like probably three weeks ago, we talked about all of Romans chapter 7. And in Romans chapter 7, what it ends with is that it it ends with Paul talking about his struggle with sin. He talks about this battle that he has with this indwelling sin that he he hates. He he keeps doing the thing that he doesn't want to do. And in Romans 7.15, he says this. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, 
but I do the very thing I hate. Paul talks about here is he's, he takes off the mask and he says, listen, all of us, all of us struggle with sin. All of us have things in our life right now that we wish we could change, that, that are destroying us, that are consuming us. And so Paul takes the mask off and he says, listen, all Christians, that we have this deep, deep struggle. And this struggle, what does it produce? He says that there are two cries of the Christian heart. Right? He says that, that when we are battling with this sin, when we're constantly reminded of our frailty, of our weakness, of our inability, right? our heart cries out, oh, wretched man that I am. Right? Because when we, when we violate these standards, we know that, that God has moral standards. Right, He's given things that we ought to do, that we ought not to do. And when you encounter God, you all of a sudden realize what those standards are, right? I mean, when I first became a Christian, I had all these ideas about what it meant to be a good person. But when I actually encountered God himself, I started to realize that it was a lot more about motivation than it was about external actions. And so all of a sudden I realized when I saw God about his holiness and his perfection and my inability, that when he said, be selfless, he meant primarily my attitude and my heart towards him and others rather than simply acts of service, and all of a sudden, I realize my inability. You know, it's not just simply your failure or our failure to keep our own standards, but simply we can't keep God's standards. And so when we realize this, when this actually sinks in, when you begin to know God, you realize your condemnation. You realize that you're guilty, right? And this is why often people have this motto of, well, I'll come to church when I, uh, when I get my act together. When I start living good, then I'll come. Why? It's because we know that there's something wrong with us, all of us. We know that there's something that we are doing. There's a way of living. There's a way of thinking that actually isn't pleasing to God. And so we think, though, that we can change ourselves. We think that we can fix ourselves. See, in this kind of relationship, we're thinking of God primarily as a judge. right? We think of God as this judge who looks at an offender and looks at all the things that we've broken and then passes off condemnation. Right? Which is, if we are not in Christ, then we stand guilty. If we're not in Christ, then we have broken the laws that God has given. But you see, this isn't the cry, this isn't the only cry of the Christian's heart. Right? The Christian doesn't simply cry, oh, wretched man that I am. He also cries out, thanks be to God. Right? Thanks be to God. Why? Why is the Christian not only crying out, wretched man that I am, because he knows his inability, but he's also crying out, thanks be to God. The reason that the Christian is able to cry out, thanks be to God, is because he knows that he doesn't live under condemnation. That he no longer lives underneath the reign of sin. But instead, he stands forgiven. He stands free. He stands loved by God deeply. You see, no condemnation is actually a legal term. It means that there is no penalty. There is no guilt that is credited to your account. When you stand in the law court of God, there is no evidence. There's nothing to bring forward. It's, it's been taken. See, often we think no condemnation means that like our past has been cleared, right? We think that, well, God took off all the bad things I've done in the past. And he's kind of given me a clean slate, so like I better not mess it up. You know, like that's not it at all. That is not it at all. What no condemnation means is it means that you have been forgiven for everything in the past, everything in the present, and everything that will be in the future. That you now stand in a position to where there is no possibility of condemnation ever coming against you. Your Heavenly Father no longer sees it. It's been taken and swallowed up, and you stand righteous, innocent, pure in His sight. I'll tell you, I think that the, 
the greatest failure of, of my life as a Christian is that I don't really believe that as often as I ought to. Is it oftentimes we say that in passing, you know, somebody's struggling with sin and we remind them, you know, we give a real, you know, quick, hey, there's no condemnation in Christ. And we, we think about that and we hear it and then we kind of go upon our lives and we actually continue to live in condemnation. We actually don't believe that God has really forgiven us. And so our lives are then marked by fear, by insecurity. The late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this about failing to believe this verse. He says, on the one hand, we feel far more guilt, unworthiness, and pain than we should. From this may come drivenness from a need to prove ourselves. Great sensitivity to criticism, defensiveness, a lack of confidence in relationships, a lack of confidence and joy in prayer and worship, and even addictive behavior, which can be a reaction to a deep sense of guilt and unworthiness. Do you see that often the problems in our life actually stem back from the original problem that we really don't think that we have been forgiven in Christ? We really are continuing to operate out of this idea that we are stand condemned in him, especially, especially in the middle of our struggle with sin. Right? Because what's the first thing that we run to when we're in sin is that we will either run to dismissing sin and saying, oh, it's not a big deal, and we therefore play down God's holiness, or we beat ourselves up and think that there can be no forgiveness, thinking that our sin is stronger than God's grace. And so what we have to see is that right, our sin is horrendous. It, it breaks God's heart. He hates it. But yet, he stands there still. He comes and presses forward closer to us. And he says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not moving. I'm here for the long haul. I see the deepest, darkest part of your heart, and it can't scare me off. I'm here. Do you see that when we fail to believe that we no longer live under condemnation, we will live out of fear and out of duty, right? That's th- those are the main motivators because we feel like we owe God this massive debt, and so we have to pay it off. And so all of our good deeds are simply to appease God. God, are you now satisfied because I owe you all this stuff? And, and we operate in relationships with other people like that. While we might be doing selfless acts, our heart is really in fear, fear of either what they think of us. We're consumed with whether they think that we're a good person. And so our good deeds are actually operated in order to control, in order to get their favor, right? Or it's, or it's out of duty, where we think we have to. This is what we ought to do. And so that it takes all the mystery and all the joy out of life because we're constantly ingraining upon just duty. Here's what you have to do. But when we really do believe that there's been no condemnation, there's no condemnation for us, then we are able to operate in God with a love relationship. Lloyd-Jones talks about earlier, he says that the difference between a non-Christian sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man breaking the law of the state and sinning against his wife. So when non-Christians sin, they see God simply as a judge, and they break a law of the state, and so they are in fear of the justice that ensues. As Christians, we no longer see God just as a judge, but we also see him as a heavenly father, as we just sang about. Right? He's a good, good father to us. And so rather than simply offending something outside of us, it's both, it's both better and worse. Right? Because there's no legal condemnation for us, but now we have, we have wounded someone who is the closest person to us. 
It's more like wounding your wife. You're wounding something that's actually inside of you and very dear and near to your heart. And so it's this impetus when we realize that we are, we are hurting the one that we love that leads us to, to hate sin, to fight sin. And don't you see that this is what the Holy Spirit is doing? God gave us, when we become Christians, when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you. He comes and he takes possession of you. You belong to him now, right? He lives inside of us and he is convincing us. The Holy Spirit's aim is he is convincing us that we are stand forgiven and loved in Jesus. His aim is to wash our minds in that. And if we're still, if we cease from all the busyness and all the hurriedness, we can hear him speak that over us in our lives. Do you know that you're loved? Do you know that you're forgiven? Do you know that I am going to use you and lavish my love in and through your life? Lloyd-Jones would, um, would ask a question to those that were considering Christianity. He would, as people were processing through whether they were a Christian or whether they were ready to become a Christian, he would ask them this to, to kind of figure out if they understood what Christianity was about. And he would ask them, so are you ready at this point to become a Christian? So he would be very pointed. Are you ready at this point to become a Christian? He says often people would come to him and they would say, well, I'm not quite ready because, you see, I'm just too bad. I've just done too many, too many bad things. I'm not good enough. I see my frailty and my inability. And Jones would say, at that point in time, I realized that they didn't understand the gospel, that they didn't understand Christianity or even the beginning of it. Because don't you see that Christianity isn't about your goodness? It's not about your ability. It's not about your moral muscle. It never has been and never could be. Because all of us fall. All of us fall short of God's glory. All of us sin. Paul in verses, uh, in verses 3 and 5 talk about the gospel and talks about how it sets us free. And the, the message paraphrase, I think, hits it extremely well. It says this. It says, God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with a problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now, what the law code asked for, but we couldn't deliver, is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. You see that God in His Son has sent His best. God went for the jugular when He came in Christ, that He has taken on sin to destroy it. It is this that the Holy Spirit is doing, that the Holy Spirit is bringing about understanding that we are free. We are free from constantly trying to work off our sin, of constantly trying to, to appease God instead of realizing that he loves us unconditionally. Only when we realize this freedom will we actually have the motivational change to fight sin. Because you see, if we are always operating out of fear and out of duty, those are far, far less powerful motivators than love, than gratitude. So, we see that there's no condemnation. The Holy Spirit comes and he brings freedom to us. The next thing is that the Holy Spirit imparts life. The Holy Spirit imparts life to us. 
you see throughout the passage, he talks about several things. In verse 2, he says, the law of the spirit of life. Right? He talks about in verse 6, he says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The spirit gives life. He imparts life. He is the source of life. And so we see two different things in this passage, that the Holy Spirit first is the one that gives original life. He is the one that causes people to be born again. And second, that the Holy Spirit is the one that sustains us in that new life. The Holy Spirit is the one that walks with us. And so first, we see in in John 3, Jesus is talking to this guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is this religious ruler. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and he's asking him about who he is. That he, he, he must be more than a teacher. And Jesus starts unpacking the kingdom of God to Nicodemus. He talks to him, he says, listen, you are not even able to see, let alone understand the kingdom of God, unless you've been born again. Unless there's a new birth, right? He says, you're born physically once, but there has to be a new birth that happens inward. Something spiritual. And he says that that new birth is only a result of the spirit dwelling in someone. When the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in someone, he gives them new life. Paul in Titus, in Titus 3, 5, he talks about, and he talks about the, um, the regeneration and washing that comes with the Holy Spirit, right? To regenerate something, it means to make it to come to life, to bring it back. And so what happens is when the Holy Spirit comes in, he brings life. He causes us to, once we were dead, to now be alive. And you see this, you see this in, uh, in verse 10, right? Look there with me. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness, right? That the spirit brings life, the same power, the same power that caused Jesus to rise from the grave, that though Jesus was dead, made him alive to God, is the same power that causes Christians to come and be alive to God. That we were once dead. We were once separated, alienated from God. But when we confess Christ, when we surrender to life, when we ask Christ to come in to take lordship, to be our savior, the Holy Spirit lives in us. And he gives us all new desires, all new longings. I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian, there are a whole new sets of things. I used to know that I shouldn't do these things, but now I had a whole new desire about what I wanted to do. It wasn't simply what I couldn't do, but now I had new desires for what I longed for. The God that I used to run away from, I now ran to. And do you see that this is what the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit changes our desire to, to come to God. Instead of running from him in fear and shame, we instead come to him in confidence and boldness. You see, eternal life isn't something that we just simply wait for in the future. Eternal life starts now. God gives us eternal life, and he says it starts the moment the Holy Spirit dwells in you. It is a type and quantity of life, the abundant life that Jesus talks about. It starts the moment that the Holy Spirit comes, and he dwells in us. And so we see that the Holy Spirit is the ground, the reason that we even have life. But the second thing that Paul talks about is that the Holy Spirit is the one that walks with us in our life. Right? Paul says in verses 5 through 7, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. 
right? Paul talks about, he says, listen, there are two mindsets. There's two realms of existence that you can operate in and they're mutually exclusive. Either you are minding the things of the flesh or you are minding the things of the spirit. You're either consumed with your goals, your purposes, your dreams, or you're consumed with God's goals, God's purposes, and God's dreams. They are mutually exclusive. You're either helping to build God's kingdom or you're helping establish your kingdom. But they are in total contrast and opposition with one another. This is why Jesus says that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would seek to save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake, he will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his very soul? For what will a man trade in regards to his soul? If we follow the flesh, if we think that life is about us, if we see it primarily from a selfish perspective, where everything in life, even our selfless deeds, are done from a motive of, look, of helping us to look better, then it will lead to death. It will destroy us. And we can't play a middle ground, right? There's no middle ground. I was recently, I just recently started reading the classics. So I, I was like, you know, I need to go back and read some of the old classics. And so I started reading um, Robert Louis Stevenson, some of his stuff. I read Treasure Island and then I went and I, uh, I got to read uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So mo- most of us have probably seen a movie or, or something that talks about that character, that depiction. The book's short, but it's an interesting look into man's inner nature in the struggle that we have. The book talks about this guy, Dr. Jekyll, who on the outside is a very polished, well-respected gentleman who is very cultured, very civilized, and seems to be um, very well put together. But on the inside, Dr. Jekyll struggles deeply with sin, with evil. From a, a young age, he has this innate desire and cherishes evil. But he knows he can't get away with it in his own conscience and he can't get away with it in the public square because the sin that he wants to do, the evil that he longs for, it will, it's a travesty and it's not accepted. And so as a scientist, as a doctor, as his practice plays out, he discovers this ability or this way in which he can indulge in this vice, indulge his evil and think that he can get away with it. So he forms this potion, right? He's able to take this concoction that changes him into Mr. Hyde. And so his bodily presence and his, his innate conscience changes. So he no longer feels guilty for sin. He no longer feels guilty for evil. And he's able to go out and indulge in as much as he likes. And for a while, he thinks that he gets away with it. For a while, he thinks that he gets off scot-free because he changes back into Dr. Jekyll. And he, he, doesn't even, he barely remembers it. And so he's able to justify and he's able to excuse because he says, that's a whole different person. That's not really me. And so he's able to get away with all this evil he thinks. But the more that he takes on Mr. Hyde, the more that Mr. Hyde takes on him. The more he realizes that he can't separate the two, that there is no longer a distinction between Mr. Hyde and Dr. Jekyll. And it's, it goes so far that at times Dr. Jekyll can't even take the potion and he changes into Mr. Hyde. All of a sudden, any kind of evil desire, and he begins to change into this other form. And you see that it becomes a point in time at which there is no longer any Dr. Jekyll but there's only Mr. Hyde. And in the end, his desire for evil, his craving, consumes his soul, and it leads to his death. You see that he promises this in verse 13. He says, 
If you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will die. Right? And for those that are outside of Christ, this is the truth. When we remain outside of Christ, the evil in our heart, whatever it might be, it might seem innocent, it might seem good, but played out through the rest of your life, it will consume your soul. It will take over. And there will no longer be you any longer, but instead that sin will begin to take hold of you. What you thought you once controlled will end up controlling you entirely. But he says, for the Christian, for those that trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And he, he will change your desire. He will give you a new desire that you will now want to do things that you before thought were impossible. You thought were ridiculous. He will give us his mind. The Holy Spirit will give us his mind. And so what is the mind of the the spirit? Right? Because this whole thing, it says, it talks about that in order to share in this life, in order to walk in the Christian life, we need to mind the things of the spirit. But what does it mean to mind the things of the spirit? Does it mean that we just need to have our our head stuck in a theology book all day? No, it means in, in the spirit, like we see this all throughout chapter eight. And so we'll talk about it more. But the things of the spirit are first what we've already talked about, that the Holy Spirit is about convincing us that we stand forgiven in God. The Holy Spirit is about telling you and reminding you daily that you operate with God on a love relationship. That each morning you wake up, he is there waiting for you to remind you how much he loves you. That he has great plans for you, that he will be with you. The Holy Spirit is reminding us that. The Holy Spirit, later on we see the Holy Spirit is about reminding us that we are sons and daughters of the King. That we stand adopted in God. And that he is our our perfect heavenly father. And that his will is always good in our life. We see later on in around Romans 8.18, we see that the Holy Spirit is consumed with helping us to realize God's kingdom. Even in the midst of our suffering, we realize that there is a time where the kingdom will come. We get to experience this transformation as the kingdom comes in our life. right? As we begin to realize and die to sin in our own life, and we see his kingdom come more, then we thirst and we hunger for more of his kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the world is transformed not by political reform. The world is transformed by individuals that have heart transformations by encounters with Christ. The more that we encounter Christ, the more that our heart is transformed. The more that our heart is transformed, the more that we will be then agents of transformation in this world. We will then be sensitive and open to the Holy Spirit as he leads us to help seek to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see, if we are about our Father's kingdom, if we, if we seek in our places of work, in our family, to make places of love, of grace, of mercy, of peace, we are accompanying what the Spirit is already up to. The Holy Spirit is already up to making this world new. Although we wait for the King because while we labor, while we long for that, it is when the King returns that all of those things will happen. When the King returns, everything will be made new our bodies, this world, we will stand in, in perfection and be able, to, be able to sigh at what it has taken to arrive. And so the Holy Spirit is about changing our minds. He's about setting our minds. So if we are minding the things of the Spirit, then, then he will be using us to change. But what is it that we mind? How is it that we can tell what our minds are consumed with? The, uh, the 21st century Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, he once said, your religion is what you do in your free time. 
as I read that, I thought that that was so convicting. That your religion is what you do with your free time. If you want to see what you worship, if you want to see what your God is, what do you do and where does your mind go to when it doesn't have anything to do? Is it a hobby? Is it a person? Is it a a more income or a pleasure? You see, when when we're still, our hearts cry out and they show us what we really worship. What we are minding will either lead to aiding in our salvation, aiding in our, our restoration, or it will lead to our destruction. Either we are going to be helping God or, or opposing God. One of the other things, and we'll end talking through this, but one of the other things that the Spirit is about, and in verse 13, he talks about that the Holy Spirit is about killing sin in our lives. The Holy Spirit is about mortifying, putting to death sin in the lives of Christians. Verse 13, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you see this verse? It has it's two promises. Two promises, and they're both conditional. He says, if you live according to the, to the flesh, right? If you live according to the flesh, there's a promise. You will die. But there's another promise. He says, if you live according to the Spirit, if, if according to the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Right? What does it mean to put to death? This word... Death, it's thanatos. And what it means is it means to have a ruthless hatred, an aggression, right? It's where we stick a flag up and we say, I'm declaring war. It's where we pull out all the stops and we say that this is my enemy and I will do whatever it takes. I will do whatever it takes to get rid of it. I hate it. Colossians 3, 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Have we declared war on our sin? For me, this this passage was especially convicting. Oftentimes I see in my life that I play with sin rather than war with it. There's a story that I I heard a while back that um, is gruesome, but I think illustrates the, the, the nature of sin. It was about a family that uh, a wife and a husband that loved animals a little bit in the exotic, and so they uh, they had a, a large pet snake, that uh, a large boa constrictor that they had that seemed they had for years and years, and it was seemed to be fine. They had all kinds of people, animals, different things around, and it seemed to be fine. Probably several years into having the boa constrictor, they had a child, and. Um, as they had the child, they cared for the child, obviously loved the child immensely, um, but didn't think that there was, foolishly, foolishly, didn't think that there was a, a big deal. They would watch the child when they would have the snake out. They would be in the same room with them, and so they would keep an eye on it. Um, and they, there was one time where the snake would actually stretch out, and it actually measured the size of the child. Not knowing exactly what that meant, they didn't get rid of the snake. They foolishly kept the snake. One day, several, probably several weeks later, they came home to the snake getting out of its cage. And the father comes in to find the snake wrapped around his infant son. Strangled to death. The father at that time takes a snake, snake and obviously rips it in pieces, tears it to shreds. But it's too late for his son lies dead. What they thought was a pet, what they thought was fine, was innocent, ended up leading to 
the death of someone that they loved. And I think about that gruesome story, and I think about sin in my own life. That often I think that it is okay, that it's not that bad. That I excuse it, I justify it. But I don't realize that it will lead to death. It will. That if it had its full reign, it would strangle me. It would cut off everything that I love and hold dear. It would separate me from God and it would hurt those that I love dearest. Do you know that this is what sin wants to do in your life? That it will destroy you. It will make you prideful and selfish and stubborn. It will harden your heart to where forgiveness and love are foreign things. It will destroy you. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. We must declare war on sin. But what does it mean? How is it that we fight against sin, right? We've declared war. We've said, listen, I hate this. And I don't know what it is for you. All of you might have different, all of us have different things that you say, listen, I know this is what I need to declare war on. I've been peddling around. I've been making a big deal. Nobody really knows about it and I hide it. I promise you, if you're not willing to confess something, then you're not willing to change from it. And what you have hidden in the darkness, God will bring to light in his mercy because he desires for us to change as much as it hurts, as much as it might be painful. God loves us enough to bring us through that, that we might confess and repent. So how is it that we go about waging our war against sin? Right? What does it mean to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit? Because he says there's a specific way in which we go about killing the flesh. It's by the Spirit. What does this mean? Right? As a preacher, I love this point because it, we put to death the deeds of the body by preaching to ourselves. What do we preach to ourselves? How do we talk to ourselves? Right? All of us preach to ourselves. Right? When we struggle, when we go through something, when we're fighting temptation, we say things to ourselves. We give ourselves these little mini-sermons. Right? What is it that you say when you're about to do something you know you ought not to do? Right? A lot of us say, I'm not that kind of person. Right? And so we use pride. I'm better than that. Don't you know? I'm not that kind of person that does those kinds of things. And so instead of actually doing whatever it is we're struggling with, we pit pride against that sin. Right? Or we say, how embarrassing would that be if people found out? And so we use fear. And so we use fear to keep us from doing whatever sin we were going to do. Or we think of, oh, I don't want to hurt that person. Right? Which is not a bad motive. We don't want to hurt others. But ultimately, we're putting concern for others as more important than concern for God. And so all of these things, right? We often, we preach these law-centered sermons to ourselves. You ought not to do this. You shouldn't do this. And we play on our will. And, and oftentimes what I see is that even as Christians, we do this. And I've even seen that I even do this at times. And it's, it's so wrong is that we use sin to pit it against sin, right? We, we utilize people's pride and people's fear and people's frustration and their, you know, their embarrassment to keep them from doing more as what we would deem unacceptable sins. And here's the thing. Listen, God deserves obedience, right? And that there are things that we need to do in order, we, we need to do whatever it takes in order to avoid sin. But, but those motivators ultimately won't stem and won't change us, right? Ultimately, if you're, if you're using fear and if you're using guilt, and if you're using shame to keep you from sin, that's not nipping it at the root. It might change your behavior for a little bit, 
right? You might be scared that somebody's going to find out and so you stop doing a behavior, but your motivation for doing that sin has never changed. It's never gone away. Instead, it's simply lying dormant, waiting for another opportunity to demonstrate itself. And so what you have to do is you have to preach the gospel to yourself. You have to preach grace-centered sermons to yourself. Is this how I will treat the love of God? It's remembering that God loves you deeply and asking yourself, am I responding to God's love in this way? Is this how I want to demonstrate the thankfulness that I have to God for what he has done for me? Because it's only when we, and this is why it's so important to, to be minding the things of the Spirit, to wake up on a daily basis and actually remember that we are God's children, that he loves us. Because if we don't start out our days these ways, if we don't actually begin having that mindset, at least for me, I realize halfway through the day I'm caught up and all of a sudden I've been talking to myself in a legalistic-centered way halfway through the day, and then I'm fighting that. And so waking up daily, and I don't know what it looks like for you. Maybe it looks like having something on the mirror. Maybe it looks like, but just finding practical ways to preach to yourself the, the gospel of grace and God's love that you would live out of it. And this is what we as a people do. Right? This is why we go to church. Right? This is why we're a part of a community. Is that we ultimately can't change ourselves. That God changes us through his spirit and God changes us through his people. Is that as we come to others and we confess our sins, as we acknowledge who we really are, as we decide, listen, I'm tired of playing a game, I'm going to take off the mask and let people really know my hurts and hang-ups, we get to have the opportunity to preach gospel-centered mini-sermons of grace to one another in order that we might be formed to be like Jesus. How do you talk to yourself? What is it that you say? What are you minding? He promises if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, 16th Century Puritan. And he said this, he said, we, he said, be killing sin or sin be killing you. Be killing sin or sin be killing you. That the, the holiness of a Christian looks like daily their attack upon sin and the realization of God's love for them. Paul says in Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see that this is a partnership. It's, it's us with God. In Philippians 2.13, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I hope you see that God is up to this in your life and that we get to partner with him, that the Holy Spirit is out to bring freedom and to impart life. He's out to bring freedom and impart life to us. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you so much that you began a good work in us and you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. God, I pray that you would help us to make war on our sin. We come, Lord, I come, knowing my frailty, knowing my inability, knowing my weakness, Lord, asking that you would give strength, that you would help us to be so enveloped in your love that the desire soon would, would loosen, would grow faintly dim. We know that you're up to this, and so help us to partner. We love you, Christ. It is in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.